Time Out with Manu Kakopian. And welcome back to another episode of Time Out with Manu Kakopian. Today we are joined by Salpi Ghazadian, who is the director of USC Institute of Armenian Studies, where they recently celebrated 15 years of education and innovation with a gala at the Beverly Hilton. They hold an annual conference curated around uh, innovation and education. Uh, It's titled Innovate Armenia. It takes place at the USC campus here in Los Angeles and also is live-streamed to an international audience who is both Armenian and non-Armenian alike. Um, Saul P. has also co-founded and directed the Sevalitas Foundation, which is a, a think tank and advocacy organization where she was managing a team of 60 professional and support staff, and she also takes part of that still today. And for close to the last three decades, uh, Saul P. has worked as an education researcher, language instructor, editor of various publications, and has been a librarian for the L.A. County Public Library where for the Armenian collection for the UCLA Library. And, of course, she is also a USC and UCLA alum with degrees in arts history and library science. And, Salpi, my first question to you is, how do you balance a life in USC and UCLA at the same time? <laughs> <laughs> right. That is the fundamental question here in Southern California. No, I'm actually really lucky. I, I think I balance well. I balance SC, UCLA. I balance all aspects of my identities. I, uh, I, it's, it's a pleasure to be able to do all the things we get to do. Yeah, I know, you know, obviously with the whole rivalry here in Southern California, that plays a, a back, uh, it, it plays as a backdrop to what you fundamentally do as the director of the USC Institute of Armenian Studies at USC. And for those who might not be aware of what the Institute is all about, how do you describe it? Um, First, I love the challenge of describing it. We're unique. There isn't another one like this institute in the world. Um, We are not a teaching institute. What we do is research. We do research. We support research. We program um, uh, and we uh, where research is done, uh, we support it, and where it isn't, uh, we finance it and strategically decide what areas of our existence do we really need to know more about. You know, what do we need to understand more about so that we can offer support to the development of the Republic of Armenia, so that the people who govern that country, the people who are citizens of that country, have options, education, health, uh, security. We do the same thing for diaspora-related issues. What is What are the issues facing us in the diaspora? Who's studying them? Where does language fit in identity? Uh, what institutions are archaic and no longer needed, and why? And what do other communities do? What do the K- Koreans do? What do the Salvadorians do? So we believe in, we support research. And we also believe that that research shouldn't stay in archives. And so we put a lot of time and energy into programming that makes that research publicly accessible, but with integrity, where you're not dumbing it down, you're not turning this into a you know, couple of guys sitting around surge and, and discussing the future of the world, but where you're using data, data-based uh, knowledge to help think about policy, both in Armenia and the diaspora. 
Yeah, and you mentioned research, which is a, a really fundamental part of um, the resources you allocate to these projects. Uh, what are these research projects that you're working on? What, what do you what do you eventually bring to light for the public to consume? Um, so, in Armenia, for example, we have a project called Understanding Independence. And we started this about three years ago, before the political transformation, the Velvet Revolution, whatever we want to call it. And the premise was this, that from 1988 or so to about 1994, Armenia's political processes were amazing, both really great and also problematic in that they set the foundation for the 20-some years that came after that were not the most democratic, not the most inclusive, not the most responsive. So the question we were thinking was, what went wrong? What happened? And so that project, Understanding Independence, means interviewing people who were very much alive and involved in those early years. Leaders, you know, Levon Der Petrosian, Babgen Araksian, Vasken Manugian, and also the 22-year-olds who were running around because they were translators and later became heads of NGOs or became members of parliament. Parents, you know, people who are today 50, 60 years old who had little kids then. And what did it mean to be an educated parent and face the challenges of those years? So that just won. And, you know, I'm proud to say we're the first ones doing this in the post-Soviet space. And you know, nobody's doing this for Russia or for Belarus or for Moldova. So it's fascinating to try to understand people's lives during those very determining, you know, five, six years. That's one. On the flip side, in the diaspora, we have several uh, research projects, again, both interviewing people and gathering up archives and personal papers, photos, and one of them, for example, is about the displaced persons of World War II. The, that's essentially, for those who live in L.A., the Montebello community, the Rusahais, the DPs. These are people who, from various places in the Soviet Union, retreated with the German army when the Soviets kicked them out. So as the German army retreated, uh, the thousands of Armenians decided it's better to go with the Georgians. Ah, it's better to go with the Germans than to stay with the Soviets. So they went and lived essentially in camps in Germany for years, and they had newsletters and orchestras and dance groups and schools and even a little chapel. Their life and their memories and then the community they built when they came back to were allowed into the United States, that's a whole research project, and on and on like that. Yeah, you know, it's it's really fascinating stuff because what we do from a cultural standpoint, you mentioned inclusion and diversity, and I think the Institute is in a very, very great position to be enabling that from a cultural standpoint. Our, obviously, Armenians are fragmented all over the world, and I believe this is really an epicenter to bring everyone together. And I think the through line with your messaging is very important and unique at the same time that you can bring and have these conversations together at a global scale. Do you feel like with the Innovate Armenia conferences that you put on on an annual basis, that the, the feedback that you're getting from the diaspora is what you're aiming for at the same time? Um. Yeah, but before I say anything about Innovate, let me pick up on the point that you just made, and that is 
we try really hard to make sure that the research that we do and the programming that we do is framed in a global context. In other words, if we're talking about the DPs, for example, of uh, you know, from the German camps to the United States, this isn't just Armenian history. This is World War II history. This is German history. This is Soviet history. This is California history. And so we frame the questioning, the direction of the research from that perspective, because if Armenian studies, if the Armenian questions, if the Armenian experience doesn't become a part of bigger social science, humanities questions out there, A, we're not uh, really able to integrate and share our experiences and learn from other experiences, and B, we're essentially telling our kids that, you know, your Armenian life is this niche, it's it's this, and then the, your, the rest of your life is, is over here, and we're not creating paths for the two to intersect and to uh, meld and that's really, really important for a diaspora community. You can't live these two uh, not isolated lives, but really distinctly separate lives. It's one life. Right. And what you do, I think, from an institute standpoint is help create the identity at the same time. I'm really curious as to how these research subjects come together. How do you differentiate what gets the funding and what gets the resources to actually end up being developed and what can be, you know, saved for another day? That's the $64,000 question, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, the Institute is completely self-funded. Uh, we are at USC. We're grateful to be at USC. USC gives us a home, a roof, a gorgeous office. Uh, we're in uh, a prime building with the School of International Relations on one side and the School of Policy Studies on the other side. So all of that is wonderful, but every penny we spend, we raise. And so that question that you asked about how do you determine whether you do this versus that basically comes back to funding. We uh, prepare the ideas, we do the conceptualizing, and if we find a donor who agrees that this is important and supports it, then then we do it. Right, and you mentioned funding. I was fortunate to be invited by you and the staff to the 15th Annual Gala at the Beverly Hilton, which of course is a fundraising effort for you guys. Um, it, it was a beautiful event and uh, everything was done magnificently. Uh, how do you describe events like that for shaping the future and when you bring everyone together on, under one roof and essentially people who end up opening up the checkbook as well? You know, the 15 years of the Institute, those who started this at the very beginning, the very generous funders, donors, philanthropists, are really proud of the fact that this was possibly the first um, donation destination that really engaged and included people from every uh, fragment, segment, section, corner, side of the diaspora, you know, all of the organizations, all of the churches, all of the different athletic cultural organizations, you know, the fundamental, the leadership council, the, the core group of donors and donation gatherers, you know, you look at them and you say, okay, everybody's covered here. The churches are covered here, AGBU, ARS, they're all here. And that's something that they're really proud of. And I'm proud of the fact that when we do our research and our programming, we are 
not just inclusive, we go out of our way to make sure that we bring in either Armenian scholars who've not been brought into the fold or non-Armenians, who, including Turks, who, um, including Russians, including you know East Europeans, South Americans, who study this area of the world and are an Armenian and, again, have not come into the fold. So being as broad-based and as inclusive as we can is, is what we try to do, and I think it's part of the reason for our success. Again, ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by Salpi Ghazadian, who is the director of USC Institute of Armenian Studies here in Southern California. And uh, Salpi, how long have you been in that role now? Five and a half years. Uh, and and how big is the institute, just from a manpower standpoint? How many people are involved on a day-to-day process? We have five full-time staff, uh, two half-time staff, and a lot of student workers. This year we have 16, and they're great. And these are students who are majoring in all sorts of things, public health, neuroscience, um, business, you name it, philosophy. And they're, you know, they work to earn part of their living money. And I'm just very happy that they're here because they get to work within Armenian topics. They see a whole different face of Armenia and Armenians. And we're uh, very happy to be working with them because their questions, their eye-opening approaches to things, you know, it's really gratifying. And for those who are not involved physically right now but are actually listening to the show, how do you uh, suggest people to get involved aside from a monetary standpoint? What can uh, the Armenian diaspora do to help the Institute actually reach new heights? Well, not just to help, but also to engage and to benefit from the Institute. So we have a podcast series. Um, Podcasts are the thing these days, Manuk, as you know. Of course. We're on (laughs) one right now. (laughs) I know. And uh, it's called Unpacking Armenian Studies. And we talk to people in and around Armenian Studies about who they are, what they do, why they do what they do, and why it matters. So it's the work of scholars, but really to try to understand the people who are doing the work. And it's, it's great. It's storytelling. So everybody can listen to that. We have listeners from 80 countries. It's fascinating. Belize, you know, we have listeners in Belize. Um, so that's one way is just to listen and to share comments, to share the podcasts. The other is that part of what we do uh, beyond just doing the interviews and the document gathering from these interviewees is actual document gathering. That is, the history of the diaspora in this last hundred years is documented in various ways. One of them that we just really take lightly is all of the booklets, flyers, tickets, posters to various community events in various communities over this hundred years. Like in Detroit, a a dance troupe, a church poster in New York, just all over the place. And It's very important that those documents are kept, that they're scanned, that they're archived, that they're available for scholars. You know, dance, the role of dance in these communities. It's fascinating, and you really only get to them through these flyers. So we encourage people not to throw away documents like that, old letters, you know, I don't read Armenian, these are my grandmothers. We want them. 
anything that has to do with the Armenian experience. Books, of course, journals, of course. But people remember books and journals. They have a hard time throwing those away. But people seem comfortable, you know, dumping old letters and things. Don't. Give them to us. If they're dumpable, we'll do it, I promise. But most likely, they're extremely valuable. No, absolutely. I mean, if you ever need an entire uh, collection of Yerevan magazines, you let me know. I got quite. <laughs> we've I got, got one. <laughs> I got. I got quite a few in the garage. I bet you do. No, we've got. A, we've got a full set. Um, now, with with that said, obviously, I'm very aware of the institute and everything that it does. I subscribe to the newsletters, and I, and to whoever is not, I suggest you do because it is full of information for you to follow up on. And now, the way to do that, I'm sorry, is to go to armenian.usc.edu and sign up. It's a it's a great website. Leads you to the podcast. Leads you to our programs. Thanks for the plug, Manuk. No, absolutely. And what I'd actually like to lead into is the the last research project that you guys unveiled. Can you talk about that, please? The last research project. Which one? Well, the the, the, the most recent one that you guys uh, are, are ready to talk about. Well, um, the ones I have mentioned are the ones that, because, you know, these are ongoing. You know, mm-hmm. understanding independence is ongoing. We One of the projects is called Digital Diaspora, under which we collect all of these things that I referred to. The DP project is a part of that. So, um, most of the work is is ongoing. It's not like, you know, they start and they end. Uh, Innovate Armenia is not a research project, but it is the platform that we use to share research with the curious, knowledgeable public that we have. This is a community that continues to be curious about who we are, how we got here, identity questions, immigration questions. And this is an opportunity for us. It's a whole day festival. Uh, We don't call it a conference. It really is a festival of ideas and people. There's a music stage with innovative music from around the world. There are grand masters playing chess with whoever wants to play them. Last year we had craft beer from Armenia. You know, beer has a huge, long tradition in Armenia. And the master's talking about that. And this is all a part of who we are. This is all legitimate research, information, knowledge. It just also happens to be fun instead of burdensome. Uh, we, of course, have the full day of TED Talks, like TED Talks, in the beautiful Bovard Auditorium. Different scholars talking about different themes depending on the theme of the that innovate Armenia. So that's, I don't know if it's the most recent, but it's certainly the one that's most recurring. No, absolutely. And, you know, I was there over the summer, and quite frankly, thanks to the beer garden, I don't remember much. No, no I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 obvious, I'm obviously joking. It's, you know, for those who have not attended before, it is quite the experience to be embedded into the community. Everyone there is interested and is supporting the same cause, like Salpi mentioned, from the TED Talks to the the cultural, uh, uh, the ways you can really involve yourself culturally, whether it's understanding coffee to beer to food to music. It's, it's really a sight to see, and you can really immerse yourself uh, not only as an individual but as a family too and really understand what the, what the USC Institute is all about. Now, Salopi, let's go ahead and take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, I want to talk about what When Innovate Armenia is this year and how you guys are planning on to shape the program uh, and show moving forward. Happy to do it. 
You're listening to Time Out with Manu Kakopian. And welcome back, everyone, to Time Out with Manu Kakopian. And, of course, we are joined by Salpi Razadian, who is the director of USC Institute of Armenian Studies. Uh, Salpi, thank you for taking the time, of course, to uh, detailing the USC Institute of Armenian Studies. However, uh, you've had a very decorated career working alongside many different types of Armenian projects. Most notably, uh, you were the co-founder and director of the Sevelitas Foundation, which, of course, has done a lot of great things over the years. Uh, you've, you, as a journalist, as an editor, as a storyteller, uh, what has been the most rewarding part of your life and career working for the, the essence of being Armenian? Wow. Well, first, thanks for that. Um, Look, I half-jokingly say I've just had one job all my life. I've just kind of changed hats and, you know, changed the physical place where I work. And really, I don't think that's too much of an exaggeration. Whether I was editor of Armenian International Magazine or working at the Foreign Ministry in Armenia or uh, establishing Civilitas and then Civil Net, which is the online bilingual news source that's pretty unique, that... Uh, that was very important in this whole political transformation process in Armenia and and others, you know, setting up libraries. Really, I've tried to do the same thing, that is, expand the Armenian world and link it to the bigger world as much, as deeply, as mm, beneficially as possible so that we don't live and work in a silo. We're not this niche, this... You know, the ghetto in the best sense of the word, you know, this isolated community, that we're a part of the world. We are. That is what diaspora means. And we may as well, therefore, act accordingly. If we're going to do journalism, let's do world-class journalism. I mean, AIM was a world-class magazine. It matters. Um, If we're going to do libraries, let's do them so that the books are accessible to the people who need them so that we don't sit around and saying, you know, our our youth doesn't know anything about Armenians. Uh, If we're going to be in the foreign ministry, let's do it in a way that presents the best of Armenia and its issues to the international community. So uh, it's just been one job and I've loved it all. You know, and I can definitely relate to you on that. When I first kicked off my career, I was, uh, you know, wet behind the ears uh, writing about um, Armenian heroes that I grew up admiring. You know, I was I was a young kid out of college when I interviewed the likes of Andre Agassi and Jerry Tarkanian and Alex Yamanijian. And, you know, I I was always fortunate. I, I considered those formative years for myself to be very fortunate to really own my skills and my craft. And, you know, I'm sitting here today with the with this kind of radio show and platform to really help amplify these stories more and more. And you've done that throughout your entire career. And you've, you've actually done that from the grounds in Armenia as well, correct? Um, yeah, 15 years in Armenia. Um, I went to work in the foreign ministry, worked there for nine years as special assistant to the foreign minister at a time when um, so much of Armenia's policy was just being not just developed, but also explained and identified and shared you know it's 
the world has to understand why Armenia's relationship with Iran is very important. Just knowing that it's important isn't enough. They need to understand why that relationship is important. They need to understand why uh, Armenia's relationship with Russia is very important. It's not; these are not uh, arbitrary choices, policy decisions. These are based on real geopolitical and historical issues, problems, concerns, worries, and if you don't explain it, it's very easy to be pegged as, you know, these guys are pro-Russian, oh, these guys don't back the Western policies on Iran. You can't do that. You can't afford to do that. Armenia cannot afford to work in isolation in anything, economy, culture, politics. So being on the ground and having a chance to participate in that is is it's fascinating. And you realize what little maneuver room Armenia has what little room, little wiggle room it has, and how important it is to use all of its cards. And all of its cards are you and me and and all of the channels that we've got in the world to communicate, to uh, integrate. It It's a very different look. It's a very different feel for being Armenian. I don't like the word help. I don't think the diaspora helps Armenia. I think the diaspora engages in Armenia, participates in Armenia, we're not helping. We're doing what we can to be a part of it. And that makes it an egalitarian, open, fair relationship. When we go in thinking we're helping, that's when you end up making decisions that are possibly not the right ones. You know, It's got to be part of the process on the ground. And, you know, you mentioned on the ground, um, Sivilnet's storytelling and journalism and reporting throughout the Velvet Revolution a few years ago, with, of course, the help of your son, Mashak Ghazadian. Shout out to him for for all the great work he did with his storytelling. Still still remember his Serge Tankian interview. Um, What what was the process like for for you to really to shape that narrative what were the what was the stories you were trying to tell and investigate into uh, this is my favorite topic we have another 2 hours right <laughs> um, so look when we started civilnet um it was because it was really clear that a getting information from armenia to the diaspora and vice versa wasn't working so well number 1 number 2 in Armenia, really until today, most of the news outlets think that news is made by the government. I call a press conference, I make a couple of statements, you run them just the way I said them, and that's news. But what we know from good news consumption in the West, for example, and I've got to say it's you know gone to hell in some areas, but anyway, uh, is that you know the question about why is the most important why and how do things happen, and to try to present those stories, the things that really make up Armenia. So we hired a bunch of really smart, trilingual young people, no journalism training, and said, what's the question that comes to your mind as you're walking to work every morning? You know, what do you see? You see a pile of garbage? Do you ask why? That's a story. You know, do you suddenly remember your fifth grade teacher because they taught you this? That's a story. And to really get to the to the core, the essence of life in Armenia and the issues in Armenia. And when it came to uh, political and social change, we continued along the same line. And, and 
2011, when CivilNet started, nobody in Armenia did live television. Now, that sounds like an absurd sentence, so let me say it again. Nobody in Armenia did live television. So when the very first village and uh, township elections were being held, our guys went. And nobody could figure out what the hell they were doing there. More importantly, when those first small protests started, like Mashtots Park, which is that cute park right in the middle of Yerevan that they wanted to turn into a little mall, our great crew, we didn't have live equipment then, grabbed the computer, grabbed the telephone, grabbed the camera, put the cables in, and went running off. So the guy with the camera is being followed by a guy holding a laptop open, connected to a telephone, so that we could get Wi-Fi, so that we could broadcast live. And that's why those protests succeeded, is because people saw them in real time and said, you know what, I'm going to go stand there too. Yeah, and CivilNet was really instrumental throughout that entire time with the the storytelling that it was the, the storytelling that was coming out from the grounds it, it was second during to the n- revolution. Yes, yes. Absolutely. It was it was second to none. And you know, you're a journalist too. How how are you shaping that through line from a storytelling standpoint? What were the what are still some subjects that you're investigating into now? Well, one of my in fact it was since you mentioned that Mashag and I were together there at that time, we were only there because we were really doing a trip through eastern Turkey, western Armenian lands. And we were in a car going from um, Van up towards Gars after uh, we were going to stop at Ani. And, you know, in the car, I was just on the phone looking, checking out to see what was happening in Armenia. And it was clear that these, uh, the walk, the Pashinyan walk from the north down towards Yerevan was just really gathering up steam. So we changed plans. We got into a car, came through the border, through Georgia, of course, into Yerevan. And the stories then, Manuk, are not very different from the stories now. That is, what are the primary concerns of people in their regular, normal, everyday lives? And how do you tackle them? And how do you begin to answer that question in a country where Every question is complex. It's not like, you know, if we fix the health system, everything else will fall into place. It's not like that. How do you fix the health system? How do you explain to the citizens why we're going to get rid of these little rinky-dink polyclinics in the little villages? Because it's much safer and much more effective to get health care from a few places where the experiential base is bigger, you know? The more uh, surgeries you do, the better you are. And that's where you want to be in a in a pinch. You don't want to be with the local village guys who maybe do six procedures a year. How do you explain that? What do you do with the people you just fired if you did that? How do you ask the same questions in sphere of education? Because if, if the public... Look, I, I live this stuff, so I know I'm giving you a long answer, but if the public doesn't begin to understand the complexities of governing, that it's not as simple as saying, make the education system better. What does that mean? You want more patriotic songs. I want way more art and humanities. How do we do this? How do we pay for it? How do we train our teachers? If you don't talk about the complexities of these questions, people can very quickly say, oh, don't like this government. Let's move on to the next and never really put in the the uh, invest 
the resources that it's going to take to fix each of these sectors, and they all need fixing. So I think that's the question. That's the permanent question that we have at CivilNet and that I wish all uh, journalism outlets had. That is, let's look at the fundamental issues in each of these sectors. The judiciary, why are we so messed up? What caused it, and how is it going to get better? And, you know, we're not the only people on the planet. The Georgians have made all sorts of strides in some areas, not in all. How did they do it? How do you do it? How do you change a whole society's way of life? You know, Wasapi, I love the passion, and you bring that passion into your current role with the direct, as the director of USC Institute of Armenian Studies. You've brought it your entire career. And, you know, it, it's evident that preserving the ident- Armenian identity really matters to you and really helping create a greater diaspora all around the world. And, you know, you, you have a relationship with Nikol Pashinyan. You have brought him to innovate Armenia. He is a journalist. <laughs> yes. He, I won't take full credit. <laughs> he, he, is a, he is a journalist as well, too, at heart, just like we are. Uh, what are those conversations you have outside of the camera? And, and what, what is that? How do you feel that he is shaping Armenia for a better future? I think the best thing he's done is give people hope and empowered them so that they understand that, yes, we can effect change. What remains now is for the rest of us, the civil servants, the journalists, the diaspora leadership, the diaspora professional, the individual, to try to see how we can make a piece of that happen. It's what he has managed to do is convince people that, yes, there can be change. Nothing and no one is forever. Now, now knowing that I'm empowered, what do I do with that power? That's the policy development challenge. And, you know, the minute I say policy development, it sounds highfalutin, and I don't mean it that way. But policy development really means choices. It means life choices. Do we put money into kindergartens or, heaven forbid, into orphanages? You know, every time the diaspora talks about supporting one more orphanage, I have a heart attack. We have 900-plus kindergartens in Armenia. They each need everything, from crayons to construction paper to you name it, right? Who is working on a systematic way of supplying those? Rather than one more time we have to help, help, the word I can't stand, you know, some orphanage. Let's help the kids. Let's participate in the lives of the kids that are in these kindergartens. The the opportunities that have opened up now with this new government means our responsibility is greater to really do something. Yeah, and and one thing I do commend you on uh, with Innovate Armenia is you do bring on government officials onto the festival. And, of course, aside from Nikol Pashinyan, you've brought a who's who of dignitaries there who really come to Los Angeles and, and, and talk about what is happening in the homeland. Um, I'm curious as to whether or not uh, you've thought about some of the programming direction you're you're going to be taking this year's show. We're we're in the midst of that right now. We're planning to hold Innovate this year, August 29th, uh, before football season takes over USC, and um, we are looking to see how we can do issues of sustainability, uh, which is 
not a word that's often used in Armenia, but it is key to Armenia's development, whether you look at population, whether you look at environment, you know, whether, however you look at it, economic, obviously. So issues of sustainability, tech, of course. I mean, the number of incredible tech companies now in and around Armenia and here in in the U.S., especially in Southern California, amazing. So to provide a platform for them, uh, music from around the world, of course, including Armenia, new musical groups, new bands, innovative music. I hope we can have beer again. That was my favorite part last year. <laughs> um, so that's kind of the beginning of what we're looking at. Yeah, and you know the best way I can describe it is you know the World Congress of Ar- uh, Information Technology Conference that took place last year. Yes, um, I think that is what we have here in Los Angeles, just from a just from a Los Angeles standpoint. I mean, that was a who's who of people there. But you curate a who's who of guests itself, too, that really goes through what the U.S. USC Institute of Armenian Studies is trying to accomplish. Um, Do do you perhaps plan on bringing Nicole Pashinyan again? Is that going to be an annual thing for you? Um, Don't know. Don't know yet. It's a. way too early to try to schedule him in any way. It also depends on how uh, our programming goes because, you know, it's we, we don't want just a gratuitous participation. We want, if it's him or if it's one of his ministers or several of his ministers like last year, to really be an integral part of the topic at hand. Last year, what we really wanted to do was a discussion of new routes, you know, new paths to policy, to options to development. And in that context, he was essential, as were his cabinet members. So this year we'll see. But I really think that in the context of sustainability, we're going to need him or, you know, some of his uh, army. Quick question for you. Let's say Nicole Pashinyan said, Salpi, I want you in my cabinet. What is one thing you would change in Armenia today? The uh, access to information. I think that members of government have to be more transparent and more participating. And I think that's changed a huge deal since, you know, since Pashinyan's government came in, I have to say hugely, but still the, um, the burden of explaining the very difficult choices facing us are really on the government. And, and there just needs to be more of it. It's a thankless job. You're always in trouble because you say the wrong thing and, you know, you stumble over your words, And but it has to be done. More and better information. And speaking of information, you mentioned the website a little earlier. Can you please re- refresh everyone's memory as to where they can follow up to get more information on the USC Institute of Armenian Studies? Sure. The website is armenian.usc.edu, but, you know, as anybody who does social media knows, Instagram is just on fire and we're in there every day one of the series that we have is called word of the day uh, shushan garabedian uh, dr shushan garabedian who's deputy director of the institute uh, does a daily word of the day armenian uh, it's english equivalent eastern armenian western armenian it's a lot of fun very short a minute and a half every day has like i don't know how many hundreds of followers i think people would get a kick out of that twitter and facebook we're there all the time 
Well, Salpi, we are looking forward to continuing the conversation through social media, continuing the conversation through the Institute. And I know you guys have a big program lined up for the summer. And again, for anyone who hasn't attended, if you are in the Los Angeles area, Quite frankly, if you're not in Los Angeles, I would suggest you travel. Yay, uh, it, absolutely. It is It is on Labor Day weekend. I'm sure you can make it. It is not Labor Day weekend. Oh, it, it's not this Labor year. Labor Day weekend is the following weekend. It gotcha. is not Labor Day I, weekend. I, have my, we thought that would be easier. I, I, I guess I'm on the Aztec calendar still. <laughs> uh, excuse me for that. But, you know, it is something where you can definitely um, make an event out of it and um, really something that the family should in, in invest time and the resources into checking out because it is full of information and knowledge that should not be missed. So, Salpi, thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy day. I'm pretty sure you're going to go back to the grind right after this and looking forward to seeing what all your hard work yields moving forward. Thank you very much. My computer's open already. Here I go. But thank you, <laughs> Manuk, for this opportunity. Thank you very much, Salpi. Looking forward to talking again soon.